Welcome to Four Questions. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Dave Evans, a lead economist at the World Bank, who's joining me to provide insights on how we can ensure that everyone gets a decent education. In the 1990s and 2000s, there was a brilliant global campaign to ensure universal primary education. And that's been achieved, largely. A big development success story. But there's one hitch. Getting kids into school doesn't necessarily improve learning outcomes. In Kenya, there's been huge strides in improving educational enrollment, yet no change in literacy over the past eight years. Have governments been aware of this, or is it new information to them? Or if it is new information, how come they didn't know? Well, why didn't we know something so fundamental, Dave? Thank you, Alice. In the World Development Report, we highlight this global learning crisis. Children in school in most of the world are learning far less than they should. The challenges in learning aren't brand new information, but there have been reasons for governments to prioritize investments in access. So one reason is that getting children into school isn't easy, but in some ways it's easier than achieving learning for all. Build schools, hire teachers, many children will come to school. Not all. And it's definitely true that universal access has not yet been achieved. We've made enormous progress, but there's still more than 200 million school-aged children around the world who aren't in school. But once those kids are in school, many of them aren't learning. From the donor side, the Millennium Development Goals really encourage to focus on access. These gains in access have been a massive achievement, but now that we've achieved that, we start to see these fissures where the learning in so many cases just isn't happening. So, so I just want to clarify this point. Is it that we didn't know that learning wasn't improving? I mean, is this new information that learning hasn't improved? And if it is new information, why is it new information? So in many countries, it's relatively recently that there have been systematic oh, great learning assessments at large scale. So you could certainly ask experts and they will say, oh, we were aware that there was a learning crisis in years past. But it's much easier to call attention to a learning crisis when there's a national sample of third graders and we realize, oh my goodness, 80% of these third graders can't understand a single sentence that they're reading. So the data has improved. The data has improved dramatically. And you have some, a lot of these are government improvements, but many of them are also citizen-led assessments. So in India, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, there are assessments where civil society organizations are helping to implement broad level evaluations of children in early grades which have really uncovered not just the existence of the learning crisis but the scale of it. Okay so that brings up two further questions. Why is it that these big these big, these big inquiries are only being done now rather than 10 years ago? So a big piece of that has been that a lot of the focus has been in getting children into school right, okay. because for a long time, people have really believed that if we get kids into school, maybe they won't learn as much as we hoped, but most of them will learn something. And from the face of it, that doesn't seem like a crazy idea. Yeah, sure. What the World Development Report highlights is that we really can't count on that link. And why is that? Why doesn't enrollment necessarily improve learning? So there are a few reasons for that. Part of it is that you end up with, you have a... Uh, you have a few ingredients into the learning process, mm. right? You have the students, you have the teachers, you have the stuff, mm. right? The buildings and the, mm. the textbooks and computers, yeah. and you have the management, and all of those go wrong in some systems. So you have kids who enter without sufficient nutrition, without sufficient stimulation at home, and so then the education systems are just playing catch up. You have teachers 
who are unprepared, uh, unmotivated, and often unsupported. And so you have teachers who, with extremely high levels of absenteeism in some countries, where they're out of the classroom two days, the, out of the school two days a week, and out of the classroom even more than that. We, we have evaluations that show that in many countries, teachers don't even have a mastery of the content that they're supposed to be teaching. Now, it's easy to hear that and say, oh my goodness, well, these teachers are terrible. Well, these teachers are a part of a system, a right. system that recruits teachers, and it's supposed to train teachers. So if teachers don't have the skills that they need, it's not the teacher's fault. This is part of a faulty system. Okay, so we have schools that can't produce learning without prepared, motivated learners. And in the World Development Report, you say we need to invest in early years education, care and nutrition. Like one thing, one thing you mentioned is that only one in five kids in low income countries attend preschool. Why is that? So there has been a real focus on seeking to universalize primary education, mm -hmm. and that's been very important. Mm -hmm. But that has naturally meant that there hasn't been as much of a focus in other areas. And one of those is expanding early child education. So that's one of the reasons that both at the government level and at the international donor level, a lot of that emphasis has, has been there. A second is an information failure. Part of that information failure takes place at a macro level. So of course we've known for a long time that investments in early childhood are important and we have evidence from these small studies like the Perry Preschool in the US that show these kids had this intensive preschool and 40 years later they have much better social outcomes. But it is much more recently that we have large-scale quasi-experimental evidence that shows that in general providing preschool and other early child investments that start way before preschool are really important and can be implemented at scale. Okay, so let's suppose we have governments and parents invest in and support preschool and so then we get these wonderful prepared learners. But then still we have a problem that they come to school and their teachers aren't there. Like I spent three months in Zambian schools and this will be very familiar to you. We had six classes a day and teachers turn up to two of them. How do we overcome this huge problem, not just in Zambia, but much more broadly of teacher absenteeism? So teacher absenteeism is a challenge in many countries and the solution involves both technical and political movements. Mm -hmm. So from a technical side, there have been efforts to try to figure out how to help teachers be on time. So there's an interesting distinction. Sometimes when I talk to governments about teacher absenteeism and they say, oh, well, the ex number of excused absences is high, but unexcused absences are relatively low. If you're an eight-year-old child trying to learn to read, you don't actually care whether your teacher is excused or not excused. So these excused absences often are because teachers are sent on some sort of errand or mission either for you know, local government or for the, for the school. And so that's a problem, you know, that's fundamentally a problem where if we can relax those constraints and say teachers need to be in school, that's important. Mm. Now, unexcused absences where teachers are absent for you know, personal reasons beyond what's a, a reasonable amount mm. For, mm. for a worker, part of that has to do with systems of professionalism. So you're a professional, I'm a professional, I show up at work, and if I don't show up at work, somebody notices that I'm not at work and they call. And if that happens multiple times, eventually I'm going to get into trouble. Mm. And that's not because they don't think highly of me. It's because 
in my job, I'm expected to perform the duties of my job. Mm. And so with teachers in the same way, we need to te treat teachers well, but we also need to expect a lot from teachers. And that means having systems where if teachers don't show up, there's accountability. And when they do show up, there's support. Mm. So they have both sides of that. Now, some of these changes take political changes. This isn't always just something where the Ministry of Education can change a policy. And that takes much more than the Ministry of Education. It means getting a lot of stakeholders involved to make big changes in the education system that allow both better support and better accountability for teachers. Okay, so I absolutely can understand that. So my peers will notice if I don't attend my classes, etc. But some of the stuff we can't observe and we can't hold people accountable. For example, what happens in the classes. So a huge problem can be rote learning. How, how do we overcome that? Because the expectations of whether you're in the class or not aren't going to affect that. So how do we incentivize, or how, it's not just about incentives, how do we support teachers to avoid rote learning? Absolutely. Most teachers want their students to learn. Yeah. And most teachers receive a teacher training in many countries that is deeply theoretical, that gives them very few practical hands-on skills for how to effectively engage students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine most of your training before going to the classroom consists of sitting in a university lecture hall where a professor lectures you with right chalk on the board, and then your job <laughs> is to go into a classroom and suddenly dynamically <laughs> engage children in child-centered learning, which I think I read an article about at right, some point yeah. in the course of that study. We don't prepare teachers appropriately. Right. And then even the training that happens on the job mm. often consists of more of the same, where teachers leave the school and they go to a conference hall mm. and they hear some lecture about something, and then there's this hope that they will change their practice magically. Now, none of us really changes our practice that way. The way we change our practice, yes, maybe we learn something, but then we have a coach, we have a, an effective manager who gives mentoring and supervision on the job. And we've seen that education systems that work well are education systems where you have good school principals and you have follow-up for teachers that provides pedagogical support so that they can move away from rote learning. Yes, more active learning takes more effort on the part of teachers, but it also just takes support that many times teachers aren't receiving. Okay, I've got another question about magic bullets. What about technology? Suppose I've got some really rubbish teachers that just aren't improving. Can laptops, etc., and all that techie jazz help fix things? What we've seen in many cases is that this technology that's attempted to, you know, we, we throw a laptop into the hands of a child and we hope that magically this child will discover something. And what we found through evaluations in Peru and in many other countries is that these simply have not translated into learning gains. Now, nowadays people will say, oh, well, of course that wouldn't translate into learning gains. Well, anybody who was around 20 years ago when some of these initiatives were beginning, there was really a hope and yeah. a belief that maybe if we just get this technology into the schools, the kids who are creative and they want to learn, mm. they'll just learn things on their mm. own. Mm. It just doesn't work. Oh, really? And so, in fact, what you have to do is you have to use technology to complement mm. teacher-student interactions, mm. right? So in some cases, what that looks like is complementing the classroom time with additional time where students who are falling behind can, can catch up. Some of those promising technological interventions, some new efforts in Uruguay and in India, 
have used personalized learning via technology. It's very difficult for a teacher with 50 students to necessarily reach every single student so in wait, that class. So wait, can I just clarify, why is the technology good for remedial education but not for the first class? Why, why is it good for the catch-up or follow-up or remedial but not the main thing? So the key is that the technology isn't good in and of itself. Right. So certain kinds of technology can be really helpful. So building a computer lab or throwing laptops into schools is not inherently going to solve your education crisis problem. However, using, for example, personalized learning technology, which lets students learn at their own pace. But why can't you do that from the beginning? Why can't you have the personalized learning technology for all classrooms? You absolutely can, and you can have that, but we don't see any cases where that substitutes right, for okay. student-teacher interactions. Okay. Fundamentally, students value and they need some sort of interaction beyond what, mm -hmm. at this point, technology can do. Mm -hmm. And it's you know, much as it's tempting to try to get around these people, we're never going to have effective classrooms that don't have teachers involved at some level. Teachers have been crucial to that. Well, that's a relief for my job, at least. Exactly. <laughs> okay. No worries. I don't know, at the university level, it might be different. <laughs> okay, next question. So are there like a set of concrete policies that you think all governments should adopt? So there are principles that every government can pay attention to. Okay. So, for example, as we've examined success stories across the world in the World Development Report, what we've seen are three big buckets of actions. Mm. So the first one is assessing learning, making sure, you know, assessing learning by itself doesn't solve your education crisis problem, but it's very difficult to know if you're improving if you aren't measuring whether children are learning or not. The second is to act on evidence. So when we reform the education system, we build on the expansive evidence that we have on what works to improve learning in the classroom, to motivate teachers, to prepare children. And the third is aligning actors, making sure that all the different stakeholders are really paying attention to learning. And that's not something we can take for granted. No. A lot of times it takes a lot of effort to align act towards, actors towards learning and enable significant reforms to well, improve well, learning. Let, let's hold on a second. I mean, how do you really get that effort to work? I mean, because this sort of assumes that governments already prioritize learning or at least will be open to prioritizing learning. I mean, it's possible that maybe poor and unequal learning outcomes reflect that it's just not a government priority. I mean, in some uh, former British colonies, education ministers are political appointees with limited knowledge or commitment to inclusive education, ignoring or allowing defunding of schools with ethnic minorities, as in the USA. So, certainly in... Dave, that was hilarious. You should have laughed. Yes, well, I, I, can't, I, I can't disagree. But, I mean, fundamentally... It, thankfully, ministers of education are not setting policy by themselves. Mm -hmm. And so what we saw, for example, you know, a number of years ago when uh, Peru participated in the International Student Assessment PISA and performed very poorly, one of the last performing countries in all of that, there was political action in response to that. It was very embarrassing. Right. Something is wrong. Mm. And so even if the Minister of Education had wanted mm. to say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter, there was response from other parts of society. You see the same thing, for example, in Brazil, mm. where learning assessments are, uh, are announced and there's a lot of decentralization, so individual states have a lot of power, individual yeah. municipalities have a lot of power, right? So even if the Secretary of Education in an individual state doesn't care that much about education, when her state does badly on these standardized exams, yes. there is pressure on her yes. to work on learning. So if no one cares about learning, that's a problem. But citizens can exert pressure on their governments 
civil society organizations can exert pressure on their governments, and government actors can exert pressure on other actors within the same organization. I think that's a really brilliant point about the importance of both domestic and international benchmarking, because no one wants to be at the bottom of a league table, either internationally or domestically. And exactly the same thing happened with Zambia around 2006, skipping over to maternal health. Z Zambian civil servants thought they were doing really, really badly on maternal mortality. And they were like, no, Zimbabwe can't be doing better than us. Chad can't be doing better than us. And that's, that created like a reputational crisis. And it also highlighted possibilities because people saw that African countries just like them were able to massively reduce maternal mortality. And that was inspirational. You know, seeing that change is possible and also for the others really not wanting to be at the bottom. So I think, yeah, that's a really nice point about aligning it. Sorry, you were going to come in. No, I was just going to say, I think that also highlights an important point, which is that there are successes within countries and within regions. Yeah. So it's not all about looking to Singapore and Finland, no. which have wonderful education systems and we can learn a lot from them. Yeah. But you know, if you're uh, you know if you're working somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, you can look to well, Kenya and Liberia have both made rapid gains in early grade reading, which is right. fundamental to all the rest of education. Try learning social studies without being able to read. Mm. Even try learning maths without being able to read. It's mm. very difficult because you know we have these things called word problems, mm. right? And so you can look for specific wins within the region. Uh, within the country. You know, I was just in Brazil a couple of weeks ago and you have many education systems within Brazil that are struggling. You have others that are performing higher than the average of rich countries. And uh, governments within Brazil can learn from those successes. I think that's a brilliant insight. So let's focus on learning. And when we're focusing on learning, let's see which peer countries and regions are doing that spectacularly and try to share those ideas. Exactly. And then use that also to create pressure on ourselves, like you yes. said, mm. so that we are no longer the last on the list or the fifth to last on the list or the tenth to last on the list. Use that natural spirit of competition, of wanting to improve, of wanting to give our citizens the best opportunities to improve our learning and education systems. Alice, the takeaway from the World Development Report is that there is a learning crisis, but there is also a solution. And that if countries focus on learning and they pay attention to evidence and are willing to make strong political efforts, it is possible to make rapid gains and those gains in learning translate into a whole host of positive benefits from economic growth and reduced poverty to better lives for each of their citizens. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave.